I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, so um, here's what we're going to do tonight. We've been looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, tonight, in, in pursuing that, understanding where we can identify Christ, pictures of Jesus and all that throughout the Old Testament, we're going to survey through the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges, looking at pictures of Christ. This, this, is, this doesn't mean Jesus is physically showing up necessarily. It might just be an, a picture, an analogy, an allegory, um, or a template. I'll explain that in a minute, how a template of something kind of fits the Jesus template, so to speak. Um, these types, they're going to vary in strength. Some are stronger, some are weaker, but we're allowed to just say, maybe that's a type and leave it hanging in the air because we're just looking to see what God may have done with the sort of literary tapestry of the scriptures. Um, but uh, they also can vary in kind. One can be like, that's a clear type. This over here is more of like a template. This over here might be even a Christophany. So these are very different kinds of things. So let's dig in. Um, about the book of Judges, if you've read the book of Judges, or even more, if you've tried to teach through the book of Judges, as I have, you find it difficult. Um, it's easy in the beginning, and it's much harder as you progress along, because it's a very particular kind of book in the Bible. So let me set the stage for us by just reminding us what the book of Judges is. What's up with that alarm? It sounds like a building alarm to me. Oh, well, if it was a robbery, it was very short. So so let's back up and just give you like a quick intro to the book of Judges. I'm not going to do a survey of the book for the sake of the book. We're doing it for Jesus in the book, but get an idea of the context of Judges, right? So think of Abraham in the Bible. We have the calling of Abraham. That's probably around 2000 BC. That's when Abraham is called. So 4,000 years ago. Then we have Moses after his descendants go into Egypt and then they come out with Moses. That happens around probably 1400 BC. That's my understanding of the timeline. Then we have Joshua who leads the people of Israel for a while. He actually leads them into the promised land and they go into the promised land under Joshua. That's in the 1300s. BC. That's around that time. Now, between Joshua and David, we go from the 1300s to about 1000 BC. Well, the book of Judges, David's the king of Israel, the, the second king of Israel. Saul was the first. David was then the next one. Well, the book of Judges takes the time after Joshua, before David. And that's, in general, that's the timeline. That's where the book of Judges is. And Israel's not being led by kings. They don't have a king. And they don't have one leader like Moses or Joshua but rather the people are just supposed to, in their tribes, handle their issues, follow what the law says, and it'll be a good society if you'll just do what God says. Well, that doesn't happen. The people sin, and then they get in trouble, and then God brings up a judge or a deliverer to rescue them. And that's, that's what these judges are. The judges themselves are not, like we think of like judge, like almost like they're coming to like Judge Dredd is showing up to deal with you. That's, that's not quite the idea, the idea of the book of Judges. Um, the word judge could actually be translated deliverer. And that's what they largely are. They have a couple different jobs, these, these group of people. There's a 12 or so of them in the book of Judges. And what they do is they, they come and they handle the hard cases of Israel. This is what Moses did. Joshua probably did it too. When the elders of a, of a tribe or a group, they couldn't deal with an issue, then they would take the issue to Moses and he would answer that issue. He would only take the hardest cases. Well, the kings do this later as well. They could appeal. It's like appealing to the Supreme Court, right? They go to the judge. So they would judge cases, like court cases. But they would also instruct Israel on what to do. Maybe bring, maybe bring a message of God, but more often they would gather the armies of Israel and be a military leader to overcome and overthrow the enemies of Israel. 
So they had like those two sort of jobs, ultimately to deliver Israel. Um, The book of Judges goes through cycles. It's cyclical and it goes through these various cycles and the cycle goes like this. To understand the book, you got to get this. First, Israel does whatever they want. They don't care. They don't follow God. They do whatever they want, whatever religious weird stuff they do. They want to do it. They go ahead and do it. Then God allows them to fall into bondage and sends them a deliverer. That's the judge. Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, you know, Ehud. We we read about these guys. They show up to deliver Israel from the bondage to their enemies that resulted from their sin. Then the deliverer himself will always fall short. Generally speaking, the deliverers are always a disappointment in the end. The later on in their life they get, the more you're like, oh man, I like that guy. You know, it's like, that just happens a lot in the book of Judges. And I think this demonstrates the need for Jesus. This cyclical thing demonstrates a need for Jesus. How there's sin, there's bondage to, because of sin, there's a deliverer that rises up, but even the deliverers fall short. Jesus is the one who will not fall short. Jesus is the one who will ultimately deliver. These are pictures of Jesus. I think the judges, in a big sense, are pictures of Jesus. So chapter one of the book of Judges we get this story set up like this. Um, It talks about how after the death of Joshua, they're in the land, but they are also inhabiting the land with the enemies of Israel. And so they're like, okay, what do we do? We got to go up and fight against the the Canaanites or the Ammonites or the different groups of people that are around us. We've got to deal with them. How's that going to happen? So they go up and they fight against them and God instructs them, but they fail. They fail to, to chase them out. And it happens over and over again. So chapter one lists like a tribe of Israel, And then it says, and they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Then it lists another tribe and says, and they failed to drive out the Canaanites. And another tribe, and they failed to drive out the Canaanites. So that's the setup for the book of Judges. Here you are in the promised land, but yet it also still is inhabited by those you were supposed to drive out. Then um, uh, that, that, that gives us the basic beginning scene for us. And we can look here in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. I'll pick up here and read. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt or from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Um, this is interesting. This this is actually, I think, we have a good case that this angel of the Lord, like I've already did a whole study on the angel of the Lord. You could look up online. Just put the angel of the Lord in the search. Um, but uh, but this angel of the Lord, I think, is a, is a, a, a theophany. And I'll give you the reason why if you didn't already notice it. Notice how he speaks, right? When a prophet comes and he speaks in the name of the Lord, he says, thus says the Lord. The angel of the Lord doesn't do that. The angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, he goes up from Gilgal to Bochim, which means he's traveling. He's physically present in some sense. And he travels from one location to another, delivering a message. How would you get a message out to a group of people? You, you walk around giving it over and over again to different groups of people. So he travels from Gilgal to Bochim, and he says, I, in verse 1, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers to give you. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now he's quoting what God said, but he's taking credit as being the one who said it. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed 
my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say. So it's, it's all first person, like God speaking directly. And then they sacrifice to the Lord. So I think this angel of the Lord is a uh, theophany. And so we could see Christ in that, you know, being the, the one who brings forth the, the, the word of God, so to speak. The message, though, is interesting. It sets up the book of Judges for us. The message is, hey, you failed. After the death of Joshua, you failed. You blew it. And now failure is the theme of Judges. And that's why this book's hard to teach. And the further on I get in the book, the more I'm like looking for a good guy and I can't find one. Have you noticed that when you read about like the story of this, 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 these two tribes and they have a big fight and then you're like, but you're all bad guys now. Like I don't even know who to root for. And that's the idea. You don't need to root for them. They need a root canal. It's, is that a thing? They need to, there's just no good, there's no good guy in this scenario. And that makes the book reveal, I think, the need for Jesus ultimately. Um, so failure is the theme and it only escalates from there. Judges 2.10 is a good like summary statement of this. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so this is, this is the, the passing on of generations. New generations, they, they apostatize. They don't hold to the faith of their fathers. They don't stick to Christ. I mean, this, this feels like America right now. You know how we've had these watered down Christianity to now just a rejection of Christianity. That seems to be where we're moving at the moment. Um, so after telling us that there's these antagonistic nations in the land that are still there, um, it finishes the summary in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. So I'll read this. This is kind of the finishing of the summary, and then we'll get into more of the pictures. Judges two eleven, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. I mean, realize how terrible this is. It's just so terrible. Like God calls the people, he gives them his, his law, but what is it? It's showing us that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it's revealing. They abandoned the Lord, verse 13, and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So as wicked as they are, God has pity upon them. He brings them judgment and then has pity upon them as they groan under that judgment. So he brings them a deliverer. What does that sound like to you? Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So it's not just cyclical. It's like a downward spiral. It's like if I took a slinky and I open it up and it's like, here's Israel. As they come around there, oh, the deliverer comes, but then they go down even lower. Then a deliverer comes and the next generation is even worse, even worse. And you see this in Judges. The generations get worse and worse and worse. 
So they're just, they're lost. They're, it's revealing the sinfulness of mankind. Okay, so that's like the intro. In fact, chapter one, verse one, all the way through chapter three, verse six is like the intro to the book of Judges. It gives us this, this scene of how this happens. Then in Judges three, verse seven, we get the first actual judge. And that's a guy named Othniel. So I'm going to read Othniel. It's just, uh, what, five verses? Uh, verse seven of chapter three, all the way up to verse 11. So let's read it. And we're going to get from him a template of what the judges are like and how this, I think, relates to Christ. So, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 7 of chapter 3. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushon Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave him, uh, gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim so that the land, uh, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Not a lot of details there, right? We're just getting like this bare bones overview of the story of Othniel. But it's a template and it has, I think, six parts. So I'll give you quick the six parts of the template because I think we can apply this to Jesus directly. Here's the template. First, people sin. Two, second, first, two. Is that right? People sin is the first one. The second, two, they are brought into bondage. C, they cry out. F, the deliverer comes. F for four, part four. Um, episode six, no, it's five. The Holy Spirit's upon him. And then finally, as long as the judge is alive, they're okay. So if I'll run through those again. I probably distracted you from them. But people sin. They're brought into bondage. Then after the bondage, they finally cry out. Um, then the deliverer comes. The Holy Spirit generally is upon him. That's not in every case with the judges. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's upon them. Other times it's just not mentioned. Like with Samson, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Specifically with Othniel, there was in verse 10. And then six, as long as the judge is alive, they're okay. That's really consistent with the template. Why do I say it's a template? Because it happens over and over again. And we can use templates to relate to Jesus because of Acts chapter 7. Well, and Hebrews and John and the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's like consistently templates are being used. This sort of, you know, this happens again and again and again. And so we look for a way that relates to Christ. So the template here is like this. One, step one, people sin. Well, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is really serious. Then... Part two, they're brought into bondage, as it happened with Othniel. So Jesus says, um, if you, um, um, where is it? There it is. Okay, so Jesus says in uh, John 8, 31, if, uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, implying they need to be set free. And they answered to him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so there's this sin, the bondage of sin, the ultimate bondage, the bigger bondage than whoever's given you a hard time. My sin issues are way bigger than the issues of whoever bugs me, whoever has oppressed me in my life. My own sin issues are the bigger issue. And Christ, he's going to deliver us from those things. 
Um, and that ultimately, is, the sin is the thing, according to the scripture, that triggers all the bondages, all the bondage and all the hardships that we experience in life. Then for the third step, they cry out. In Romans 10, 13, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the idea. Like the people of Israel, yeah, they're in sin. Yeah, they're not worth it. But then they cry out to God and God sends a deliverer. So he, you cry out to Christ, you can be saved. The fourth part of the template is the deliverer comes. The deliverer shows up. The problems with these deliverers is they're temporary. They're in, and they're insufficient. Like they just delivered Israel from the Moabites. They didn't really fix Israel. From the Canaanites, the Ammonites. But they didn't really fix the problems. Christ comes and he's going to actually fix the problems. Galatians 1 what, speaking of what Jesus delivers us from, Galatians 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're delivered from sin. We're delivered from the bondage that, that we have to sin. We're delivered from the consequences of our sins. We're delivered from Satan and the powers of this age as well. We're delivered into the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So, so he's the escalation. Remember that theme of escalation as we see these, temp, these uh, pictures of Christ. And then the fifth one is the Holy Spirit's upon him. That happens fairly regularly in the book of Judges. The Holy Spirit is upon these guys in some way, as it was in verse 10 of uh, Judges 3.10 with Othniel. Well, in Matthew 3.16, we read this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. All right, when he was, when he was casting out demons, he says in uh, Matthew 12.28, he says that he cast out demons by the spirit of God. So he was, you know, walking in the spirit. He was empowered by the spirit, so to speak. But what he says in John 3.34 is really interesting. See, because, you know, Othniel had the spirit in some sense. But what Christ had was so much more than that. In John 3.34, it says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And so he, in other words, he's, he's speaking the, the truths of God because he has an immeasurable amount of the spirit. Like Colossians says, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So much more than whoever much anyone else has been filled with the spirit, Christ was. And then number six as long as that judge is alive, they serve God. And this is kind of the bummer with judges. You get frustrated because you read this great deliverance story and then the judge dies and it's like, well, in the days of, of, you know, Othniel, they served the Lord and as soon as he died, they apostatized and got even worse than the generation before them. And it happens over and over again. Here's the cool thing about this when you look at the picture and how Christ is better. Christ never dies. He died once he raised again. He's alive forevermore. He never dies. So where they fall short, Jesus excels. He brings us to God and eternally brings us into relationship with God. So we're forever with him. All the other types are failing types. That's consistent in the scripture. We look for where they fail. We look for where the type falls short. That's why it speaks of a need for something better than this. Right? The Old Testament law, it fails because I'm unable to perform it. Uh, Moses, he brings them out of Egypt, but he can't bring them into the land. Joshua, he brings him into the land, but he can't drive out the inhabitants and really bring the fullness to them. The judges themselves, they fail as well. The temple made a way for God to be with the people, but even with the temple and the sacrifices, they're still separated from God. There's still these layers of separation. So it's insufficient. It's not enough. It's not enough. Um, Solomon fell short as the son of David. He's the son of David, but then he falls short. The kingdom ends up divided as a result of his actions, you know, in the, in the days of his son. 
So we get, we get this sense in which they all just keep falling short where Christ, he succeeds. Okay, let's look at the second example, and that's Ehud. Ehud, I won't go into the details of the story. Ehud, though, is a very interesting story, and he um, deals with King Eglon, and he, he makes a very interesting point with the king one day. Um, I don't think there's any clear typology with Ehud, or, or perhaps there's one. I'll, I'll, I'll venture to guess that there may be a, a piece of typology here with Ehud. But basically, Ehud's this. The, the, Eglon comes in, <clears throat> and he is oppressing the people of Israel because their sins, again, this is in Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. And Ehud comes with a, uh, with a um, what do they call it when you, when you give money to the king of a foreign land? It's a... Tribute, that's the word, tribute. So they come, they come with the tribute, and he's going to bring the money. So he brings the money to Eglon. After they've dropped the money off, he's leaving with his group of people who brought all that money and whatever it is they brought, and they're leaving. And then he stops, and he turns back, and he goes secretly to Eglon, and he tells Eglon, I have a message for you from God. And now, now it's like, ooh, it's suspicious, right? He left the rest of his, he doesn't want his other people to know. Maybe he wants to be my spy, maybe. So Eglon's like, okay, I'll have a private meeting with you. Well, Ehud's a left-handed guy, and he, he straps his sword into a, an unlikely position, so maybe they're not checking him, maybe they don't check in that spot, you know, as they do quick checks, possibly. Then he goes, and he, he's like, so what is the message from God? You know, and Ehud gives him the message. He pulls his sword out, and he stabs him in his gut. Eglon's a, it says he's very fat. And so he's extremely large and he stabs him so far in that the sword just goes all the way in, right? And then he pulls his hand out and the guts come out. That's the description given. And so um, then he locks the door and he tells the servants of Eglon that Eglon's in the bathroom, don't bother him. And then he runs away. <laughs> so, and then he gathers the people of Israel and they start fighting against the king or against his people, I should say, because the king's already dead. Um, how could this be... Um, it fits the template. It fits the basic template. So in a sense, he's a picture of Christ because he's fitting this template, the picture that fits Jesus. But um, one could see a picture in the trickery done to King Eglon because here's the trickery, right? Ehud feigns submission and, and apparently he's yielding in subjection to Eglon, but secretly he using, he's using that very situation to strike the fatal blow against the king. And in a sense, this is kind of what Jesus does on the cross. It is a trick. It's a trick. It's not a trick on you. It's a trick on Satan. Oh, here's your great victory. Go ahead and celebrate. I mean, Satan puts it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He wants to destroy Jesus. And he gets his greatest victory, but in that is his total defeat. And so there's, there's, maybe there's a picture that's there. Um, Jesus feigned a loss to the powers of darkness, but he used that moment to strike against them and ruin their authority. Um, so that maybe there's something to be said there. The next judge we get is uh, in Judges uh, 3.31. It's a guy named Shamgar. Shamgar. Uh, his buddies just called him Shamwow. He's so impressive. Um, we only get one verse about Shamgar. It says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So just a tiny little snippet on this guy. The only thing I can gather from Shamgar as it might relate to Christ is um, that Shamgar is unconventional. He's using an ox goad, which is a farmer's implement. Now, don't get me wrong. You could kill people with it. I mean, you know, you can kill people with lots of things, right? If you ever, you know, watch modern movies, you can kill people with anything. I can kill people with, like, my fingernail. I probably, I don't know. There's probably a movie with that in it. Um, <laughs> pencils and pens. I remember a story. Pastor Gary was, our pastor was at a uh, airport, and they were bugging him because he had, like, some nail cutters or, uh, or it was like, or, like, a little pocket knife type thing. 
and they were bugging him like, you can't bring this on the plane. And he goes, I could kill you with a pin. <laughs> and it was like, you're not making it better, Pastor Gary. <laughs> Just submit, you know. <laughs> anyway, he's expected to get out really soon. So. Um, so, so he's unconventional. He's a farmer and he's unconventional in a sense um, you wouldn't look for deliverance from a guy with an ox goat. You look for oxes or oxen from a guy with an ox goat. And so Christ, he was unconventional. We get this a lot in scripture, these unconventional saviors, right? Um, just like David, he's a king, but he's a shepherd. And he's like, who am I? Who am I? You know, God take, took me, it says in 2 Samuel 7, 8 about David and him being unconventional. It says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. This sort of exaltation from this humble, like nobody position to this being the, the deliverer. And so Christ, he comes, he's a carpenter. He comes and he's, he's, he's nobody. He, you know, who's this guy from Nazareth? Anything good ever come out of Nazareth? As, as they said of Jesus, like what prophet rises from Galilee? That's what they said about Christ. What prophet rises from Galilee? Of course, two of the prophets did come from Galilee in the Old Testament, um, Jonah and Hosea, interestingly enough. Um, but so Jesus was unconventional. Maybe there's a connection there. Then we get to Deborah. And no study on women in the Bible is, incom- is complete, rather, without looking at Deborah. Deborah is one of the judges. Like, she's a, she's a judge. Like, they're taking these court cases to her, and she's giving instructions to Barak on where this, this other, this military leader, where he should take the army and fight people. She's like the mouthpiece of the Lord at the time. Um, she's a female. She's a judge. She's also called a prophetess. She's really interesting. Really interesting story, Deborah. Um, so, the, though I don't really see special pictures in the story of Deborah and, and Barak. It's in chapters four and five of Judges. I, if it's there, I'm, I'm cool with it. I just don't see it except for the general template. You know, we sin, we get in bondage, we cry out for deliverer, deliverer rises. Like that, that template's there. I'm just looking for other details. I don't see that. Um, maybe it's just too complicated because you have Deborah and then you have Barak and he, and he leads the, um, not Obama, this is a different one. And then he, he leads the army of Israel, but he's hesitant to do so. And that way, th- therefore, the leader of the enemy falls into the hands of a woman named Jael. And she drives a pent tag through his head. And that kind of puts the end to that. So now taken all together, we can see this as a picture of Christ because all these activities kind of work with Jesus. The, the final strike upon the enemy, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but the main, the main theme with Deborah, as you read her song, the song she sings in Judges 5, her main theme, her like things she's really driving at that she's really excited about, and so is Barak, they both sing the song, they're excited when the people willingly offer themselves to God. That's what they're so excited about, is when people willingly serve God, when leaders lead in Israel and people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord, that's what she says. And so there's this sense in which this is like more about people serving the Lord, people trusting in God, people just going for it and and living for God in their lives. That's the excitement of Deborah and that story. Then we get to Gideon. In chapters six through eight, we have the story of Gideon. Gideon, you know, we all know Gideon because we all know the story of the fleece and we know the story of the 300, you know, who went up against the, uh, the, uh, the 135,000 Midianites. And so um, here's the story of Gideon in short, right? The Midianites are oppressing Israel. Israel cries out, and then a prophet comes out. And this time before Gideon shows up, there's a prophet, and his main job is to rebuke people and call them to come back to God. Well, that sounds like John the Baptist to me. 
You know, that was his, his, he was the forerunner. So this prophet goes out. He doesn't have a name. He's not given a name, but he comes out and does that. And then this happens and it's a, um, it it is an angel of the Lord passage, but we're going to focus more on Gideon in this passage. Um, So Judges 6 verse 11, it says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash, the the Abiah's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So the Midianites, what would, they would do is they would come and steal the, the crops of Israel when they got ripe. So what he does is, you know, grapes and wheat get ripe at different times. So what he does, he takes the wheat and he goes and hides it in the wine press and he's in the wine press and he's, he's getting the chaff off the wheat. He's threshing it, hiding it from the Midianites so they won't see him in there. But that's what they had to do because they were, it was being stolen from them. Their food was being stolen by the Midianites. So there he's doing that. Now, some people would say, well, he's a coward. That's why he's hiding. Well, I think he's just being smart. I, you would too. <laughs> you're, not, you're not a coward when you hide from, from the Midianites in this situation, I don't think. Um, not that he isn't fearful. He's fearful in other places, but nothing's wrong with what he's doing. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turns to him and said, and now notice this in verse 14, it changes. It is not the angel of the Lord. It's the Lord turned to him. Question, right? Okay, wait, is it the angel of the Lord who turned to him? And it's being, you know, the angel of the Lord is simply being called Yahweh. Or, is it that God is, in addition to the angel of the Lord, God is speaking to him somehow, like God's attention that comes upon him in some sense? I don't know. And I don't know how to answer the question in this passage on that one. So maybe you could figure it out for me and let me know. But uh, verse 14, the, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. That's his tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. And again, we get this. He is, he's a nobody. A nobody is being raised up as a deliverer. That's another consistent thing. There's, God doesn't, isn't looking on the proud and the high and mighty because he wants to make pictures of Jesus, the humble and lowly. <clears throat> Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I now... If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So he's looking for some confirmation. He wants to know that this is, this is for real. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them um, to him. Now there's just one him that he's brought them to. Um, he clearly was talking to the Lord when he said, I'll bring you this offering. So there's only one person here. So maybe that implies that the angel of the Lord is the same as the Lord here. I'm not sure. Possibility. Um, then in verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Boom, the angels vanished. He's not visible anymore. 
Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Kind of an important term in the Bible. He's like, well, it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And now he thinks that some harm will come upon him just by seeing the angel of the Lord. Now it seems biblically that he would be worried if he was seeing God. So maybe there's a case there for this being God. <clears throat> I, obviously, I think the angel of the Lord is God from other passages. I'm just trying to isolate this one and see what we can get from it. Um, so verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Now, so the angel of the Lord's vanished, but the Lord is still speaking to him. Interesting. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abia's rites. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bowl and the second bowl of seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. This is interesting. He's like, cut down this pole, this Asherah pole, which is a wooden idol. And he goes, chop it down and use it as firewood to make an offering to God. Like, I just, I like that. I think that's really, it's like, yep, that, whatever, whatever, you know, the, the wickedness of my past, Lord, it is now burned up an offering to you. It's been offered to you. That's, that's neat. You know, this is, this is like someone who's been hooked on drugs, using their experience, their past life in drugs to help others with rehab. You know, it's like they're, they're taking that thing and they're destroying it to the Lord. <clears throat> kind of neat. Um, Let's see, verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he does it by night. And, um, uh, and we have this angel of the Lord that I, I, I think of, tend to think of this as a theophany. I think it's so consistent in other passages where it's clearly, even in Judges later, we'll get to one that I take it as kind of a theophany. So in Judges 6.34, we also have another reference to the, uh, to the Holy Spirit. It says, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abia's rites were called out to follow him. So he, now he's, first he does this thing, destroys the idols of his father's house. Then he calls the people gathered together together for war. But it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. So I just want you to see the template. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon him, just like we did with Othniel, just like we were with Samson. Samson, who is a really terrible guy in lots of ways. Then we get the fleeces. The fleeces. Um, I'll just read this quickly. Judges 6.36-40. through 40. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand. Notice he's already called the people of Israel to battle. He's getting a nervous, right? He says, if you'll really save them, then verse 37, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak to you just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. So first time, you know, wet fleece, dry ground. Second time, dry ground, wet fleece. And the, uh, there's, there's a lot of people that will theorize as to how this might picture Christ and then the dry and the wet. I'm not really, I don't feel like really strong about that. So I'm not going to go there personally, but I will say this. If I back out and I don't focus on the details of the fleece, 
I'll just say this. A miracle was there to confirm the things that God had said. So Gideon has a few things. He has a messenger from God. He has a miracle to confirm. And he also has dreams. In the future, there'll be a dream that he hears. So like a prophetic dream. So he has a prophetic dream, miracles, and a messenger. And these are the things that Jesus appealed to as the evidence for who he was. Right? He had the messenger who goes before him. He had John the Baptist. He had the prophecies that foretold about his coming. And he had the miracles that he was doing. And ultimately the resurrection itself. Um, that miracle. So I see that as perhaps being related. Okay, in chapter 7 of the Gideon story, um, God reduces their numbers. Gideon has 32,000, according to the text, 32,000. And God's like, let the, let the people that are scared go home. Then he has 10,000. So they dropped in numbers significantly, but they still have 10,000. And God's like, you got too many people. So he splits them into groups. He goes, go ahead and get water. And whenever you see them, he says, the people that, that lap the water, um, that uh, pick the water up and they lap it with their tongue, I think is the, the way it was. I always forget which, which group it was, but basically God wanted the smaller group. So it's, so it's interesting. God doesn't tell them which group to pick. He goes, separate them into two groups. If they, drink the, if they drink water like this, put them on that side. If they drink it like that, put them on that side. He puts them all on two sides. Almost everyone's on one side. God goes, yeah, use the other side. <laughs> Let's use the small group. So now Gideon has 300 men. He has 300 guys. We, what we get in the end is that 300 of Gideon's men will face 135,000 Midianites, which is not very good odds. In Judges 7-2, God tells us why. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many, too many for me to give over, give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God wanted to make sure that when God used Gideon to deliver the people of Israel, the people of Israel knew that they didn't get credit. They don't get credit for their salvation. They don't get to boast for their salvation. What does that sound like to you? Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's the same as with Gideon. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you in such a way that you'll know I get all the credit and you get none of it. Well, that's what Jesus did. And he gets all the credit. Praise God. So Judges 6.16, when he first called Gideon, I want to recall to your mind now something God said. <clears throat> the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. As one man. And that's kind of what he wanted. Not that Gideon would get the credit, but he wanted it to be this, give, give the people of Israel the sensation that they were being delivered by one guy and not from themselves. And that's what you get in Judges. It, you, you know, the judge will lead a group of people to do something, but it sounds like just one guy did all the job because it's picturing that Jesus is the one man that does the whole job, the whole, the whole job of our salvation. In Romans 5, 18 and 19, or I should say 5, 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we're saved by one man. <clears throat> now Gideon, though, he's still worried. He's still concerned. He's not sure if he's going to make it. And so God sends him to spy on the Midianites and he's got his 300 men camped out and he sneaks into the Midianite camp. And this is what he overhears. Judges 7 verses 13 and 14. He hears this from the Midianites, from the so-called bad guys right in the story. <clears throat> Judges seven thirteen. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and 
and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Interesting that the enemies knew before Gideon's people knew that they were doomed. You know, like when Jesus encounters the demoniac and they ask him, are you here to torment us before the time? Like they're like, we know it's coming. We know we've lost. Or, you know, are you here to do it before the time? We thought, I didn't realize it was now. You know, they didn't, didn't think the time was right. <clears throat> but they're, the interesting thing about this dream is they're defeated by bread. Right? The, the, the picture of the Midianites is just this big tent. The picture of the defeat of the Midianites is a loaf of barley bread. Rolls down the hill, hits the tent, flips it over. Now, this is interesting because this is what they were stealing from the, from, the, uh, from the Jewish people. They were stealing bread. They were stealing their wheat. Well, this is what Gideon was threshing out in the threshing floor, right? The wheat. And he goes, yeah, just a loaf of bread is going to get you guys. I'll beat you with a loaf of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And our deliverance comes from bread, from him who, who we partake of, who we simply accept and partake of. So <clears throat> the moment of the battle comes, and that's in Judges seven fifteen through 22. We're going to read this story. It's interesting how it takes place. How do, how do 300 guys take out this massive army? Judges seven fifteen. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, a hundred each, right? And put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Now they had originally this massive number, so they probably gathered resources from that big number for the 300. So they've got enough trumpets for everybody. And then they take a torch and a jar. And he said to them, verse 17, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So the beginning of the middle watch, when they just set watch, that would be a time when um, there's, there's a camp and there's guys on the outside of the camp and in the camp that are keeping watch. Well, half of, or all of them rather, they're going to sleep and a whole other crew is coming out. So it's the middle of the night, a bunch of armed guards are being replaced, which means a lot of guys are walking around outside the camp or around the camp in the dark with swords. <laughs> so it says, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So they had apparently smoldering torches and they smashed the jars. They caught uh, brighter flame again. Now, you might be like, how did they do that? Actually, for those cultures, keeping fire smoldering is kind of what you do all the time. It's really normal to do that. You don't let your fires go out. You get them smoldering for hours. There's ways to do it. We just don't know them because we have Bic lighters and uh, matches and stoves that go, tick, 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 you know, so we're, <laughs> don't worry about that stuff. So, um, oh, what verse was I on there? 20. Thank you. Then the three... Uh, the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. Let me ask you guys, where are their weapons? Le torch, trumpet. I hope this works. <laughs> so they do this and they cry out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Every man stood in his place around the camp, they're surrounding the enemy, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled because guess what? Nobody puts a torch in every guy's hand. Nobody puts a trumpet at the mouth of every one of his army. If you've got 300 trumpets blowing and 300 torches, you got, you're surrounded, you're doomed. Yeah, we're scared. So they just start stabbing each other because it's in the middle of the night and there's guys walking around the camp with swords and they're scared and they see the trumpets and they think they're under attack. So this is what they do. Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets and the Lord said, every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, and Baitabath. So you guys, we all know where that is, of course. But um, so check this out. There's a lot more to the story of Gideon, but, but I'm focused on the types, the typological aspects, right? They won by breaking a jar, shining a light, and blowing a trumpet. There were no swords. They had a trumpet in one hand and a jar in the other with a torch. They simply had faith and they called on the name of the Lord and a guy named Gideon who is part of a template type of Christ. They just called out in faith. The Midianites defeat themselves on their own swords. Colossians 2.14 and 15 talks about how Jesus used the, the sword of the enemy against him. It says that Jesus, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He used the cross to defeat the enemy. He used their own, his own weapon against him. His judo is very good. His kung fu is fantastic, right? Whatever you use on him, you can use it against you. They break a jar, they shine a light, and they blow a trumpet. Well, jars represent bodies in the Bible frequently. Like 1 Timothy 2.20, it says, it talks about us being vessels. A great house has many different kinds of vessels. What kind of vessel are you? Are you a vessel of clay or one for honor, for dishonor? Um, in 2 Corinthians 4.7, it calls our bodies earthen vessels. Adam was formed of the dust, which is the same thing you make clay jars out of. Jesus came in an earthen vessel, and it was broken to bring us salvation. Jesus is also the light of the world. So we have the broken jar. We have the shining light. And then we have, of course, the trumpet blowing. And of course, that's associated with Christ, not specifically at his first coming, really more at his second coming. When the, when the trumpet blows and Christ returns, and really that, that one picture of Gideon is, I think, first and second coming of Christ kind of being pictured together, which happens a lot in scripture. After this, the picture changes. There's a lot more people engaging now. It's, they're not just as one man. They, it gets kind of complicated just recording what really happened historically with the people. And then Gideon has major issues. He builds a, this, this ephod, this golden ephod that they end up worshiping. Um, and he seriously falls short. And this is a point in Judges, right? They fall short. Jesus does not. They weren't good enough. We need someone better than Gideon. We need someone better than Moses. We need someone better than Aaron. We need someone better than these people that have failed. Then we get to the next guy, and Abimelech is his name, and it's a debate whether he's even considered a judge or not. He's one of Gideon's offspring, and he's kind of a knucklehead, and he doesn't seem to be called by God at all. He kind of usurps authority, and eventually he gets killed because of it. I don't see any picture that's there, unless it's of the Antichrist. <laughs> so, um, Then we get another judge, Pua, 
And that's, he's a minor judge. He's just, he only gets two verses in the beginning of chapter 10, the first two verses there. He judged Israel for 23 years. Not a lot of details about him. Jer, another judge, gets three verses, um, judges 10 verse 3 through verse 5. Just another little thing, not a lot of detail there. Then they apostatize again. They worship false gods. The Ammonites oppress them for 18 years. And we get to my favorite judge, Jephthah. Jephthah is my favorite probably because no one showed me this type. I just found it on my own, which is more fun, you know, when you find these things on your own. But in Jephthah, chapter 11, Judges, chapter 11, Jephthah, we read about verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. For you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, or Tob. I really don't, I should look that up. I don't know how to pronounce that. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, now they feel like, hey, Jephthah, we like you now. Right? They, they went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned to you now, right? Because we're in distress. That you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. I'll just mention real quick that the judges frequently weren't over all of Israel. They were over portions of Israel. Um, I'll just mention that. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. That's important to him. He goes, I will be in charge. I'll be the leader. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now here's, here's the thing about Jephthah's story. Um, he was at first, he was the son of a prostitute. He's the son of a prostitute. Now there's actually intimations in the New Testament that Jesus, his parentage was questioned. And it's in John 8 in particular. So I'll read a few verses to you from John 8 that kind of imply that they were questioning Jesus's parentage. In John 8 verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm, I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Where's your father, Jesus? Now, that would make sense, considering that Joseph wasn't his father. Where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. It's really exposing their spiritual ignorance when they ask that. But there's more. A little bit later on in John 8, 39 through 41, um, there's more. <laughs> they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to him, said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your father, your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What, what, why, how does sexual immorality have anything to do with this? I think they may be implying something about Jesus. Then again in John 8, 48, <clears throat> same chapter, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, Samaritan challenges his Jewish lineage. They're suggesting that he's not really Jewish. 
The Samaritans were, were not, by them, they were not really considered fully Jews. They were considered to have this watered down half Gentile lineage. And so they seem to be in John 8 saying something like, you're the son of a immoral woman. That's what they seem to be implying. Um, so Jephthah, son of a prostitute, um, and then initially rejected. <clears throat> he was initially rejected, Jephthah. Well, in John 1.11, we can read this, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Christ is not accepted largely by the Jewish people. After his rejection, before the Jewish people accept him again, Jephthah goes out to Gentiles and is received by them. But not just by any Gentiles, by worthless people. <laughs> This to me is a beautiful picture. Verse three, right? It says, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Tob is an area outside of Israel. That's this area. It's outside of Israel at this time in Israel's history. And they're worthless fellows. That word worthless, it means empty, vain, poor, wicked, or unprincipled. They're not great people. Dude, that's the church. We're a bunch of worthless people that have gathered around Jesus. And I think it's beautiful. First Timothy 1.15, it says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, Of whom I am the foremost. You know, he who's been forgiven much loves much. Well, I love much. And it's sad reasons why. But it's good forgiveness. Worthless people gather around him. Just like David, during, during David's rejection, of uh, the people rejecting David. He goes out during that time when Saul's hunting him. And 1 Samuel 22, 2, it says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And so we have this picture of, of Christ between the first and second coming in Jephthah. Jesus himself made a point of noticing how this happened several times in the Old Testament where people who were sent to Israel were received by non-Israel, right? By Jew, non-Jews. So he mentions um, Elijah who uh, took care of the, the woman who was a widow and then how Elisha healed Naaman the Syrian and both of them were Gentiles. So Jesus is trying to draw their attention to this. Jesus himself says this is a legitimate template for, uh, for Christ typology. So Jephthah fits that pattern. And then um, <clears throat> the condition of him saving them. Jephthah's like, fine, I'll save you, but I got one condition. I, will, I have to be your head. I've got to be in charge. You can't just take me as savior. You need me as Lord. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to, my, to me, I will be your head. And they agree to do this. And this is what will happen, of course. Uh, there is a great revival coming for the Jewish people. And where they're like, you know, Jesus, we need you. We need you. You're the Messiah. And we, we did not receive you, but we want you now. You'll be our head. You'll be our Lord. Um, there's a lot more to say about that, but for the sake of time, I got to move forward. Okay. Um, Judges 12 mentions three more briefly in verses 8 through 15. That's Ibzan, Ilan, and Abdon. By the way, Jephthah, then his, his whole story just derails after that. But, but it's not related to the, to the pictures of Christ, so I'm moving off of that. Um, then Samson comes. Samson is probably the biggest failure out of all the judges. Um, he probably is, and, and consistently so. It's like he doesn't even start good, right? His parents start good. That's about it. <laughs> Um, he's not really a type. I don't, except for the general template, I don't see specific things in Samson's life. Like, let's see, when he sleeps with Delilah, what is that picture? And I'm like, him being a horrible person, that's all the pictures, you know? He just is not a good guy. Whenever he does deliver Israel, he always does it for carnal, selfish reasons. 
The only time he will fight the Philistines is for his own needs and his own reasons, not for the sake of Israel. It's just, he's just kind of a lousy guy. This is why I think when God predicts stuff about Samson, he says he'll begin to deliver Israel. He doesn't even say he will. He just says he'll begin to. It's like he's not really even going to get the job done. Then he's the last of the judges in the book of Judges. The next one is Samuel, who's in the book of 1 Samuel. He's the last one who leads to the kings. But let's read what happens at the birth of Samuel, because there we have something that's related to Jesus. Oh, Samson. Thank you. Samson. However many times I said Samuel, you have to figure out which ones were right and which ones were wrong. (laughs) Okay. Judges 13, verse 1. Samson's parents. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Seems like the length of time is pretty long too, right? And there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord, here we have the angel of the Lord again, very interesting, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save, begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So he's not a, he's not from Nazareth. He's a Nazarite, which refers to a vow where he doesn't drink alcohol and he doesn't cut his hair and he stays away from unclean things. Of course, he's going to blow it in these areas because Samson's not going to follow the ways of the Lord. Um, But in Judges 13, verse 6, keep in mind, it's the angel of the Lord speaking to them. Manoah, um, the the wife hears this, and then the woman came and told her husband in verse 6, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. So it wasn't, it was, she calls him a man, but it's obviously more than a man. He's a visual appearance that was like, whoa, something amazing here. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Keep that in mind. He didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come against us. Come again to us. Excuse me. That would be terrible. Um, Come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as, he, as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So what's clear so far is this is someone who's sent by God, but he's like more than human. He's an angel of the Lord. But then when we get to verse 16, we have the next stage when he actually meets the husband and the wife. It says, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Or she wanted to know his name. He wants to know his name. He wants to give honor to this angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. In other words, the one thing you know about this angel's name is that it's something amazing and wonderful. That word wonderful means like beyond comprehension. It's like so amazing and so wow. That word wonderful is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's in Psalm 139, verse 6, where the psalmist talks about the knowledge of God and the things God knows, right? He knows all things. He's omniscient. 
And then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. That's the only other use. And it's related to the knowledge of God being too wonderful. And here he goes, my name is too wonderful for you. What in all creation has a name that's wonderful? Well, I do think of Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So we read on, verse 19, it says, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, goes up into the flame and goes up. I don't know if there's a picture there that Christ actually is going to be the offering. Um, He goes up in the flame. I don't know, maybe. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground and look at how they interpret it. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Just like when Gideon knew, oh, and he gets freaked out. And he says, Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen the angel of the Lord. No, wait, that's not what he says. He says, we shall surely die for we have seen God. They interpret this as seeing God. That's their conclusion. I think that here there's a Christophany. I think there's the appearance of, uh, of Christ incarnate, uh, not incarnate, but pre-incarnate Christ. Um, so those are just a bunch of pictures. Samson, of course, he's, he's the last judge before Samuel. The story gets worse and worse. And from the rest of the book of Judges, I see no pictures of Christ. In fact, it's like Christless. It's like so sad and so messed up. And it's like watching a bad soap opera. And all the weird things people are doing and the harm they do to each other, it's terrible. And I think that's the point of Judges. You guys, you fail, you fail. You need a real deliverance. You need a deliverer who can bring you out, lead you in the truth, keep you close to God at all times. You need Jesus. The picture in Judges ultimately is these savior characters who come, who represent the ultimate savior, but they can't do it good enough. And they can't do it long enough. And they can't do it fully enough, right? And Christ comes and he delivers us, delivers us entirely. It ends in J- Judges twenty one twenty five by telling you, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which in biblical language is very bad news. Right? Modern day language, do what's right in your own eyes. Sounds great. Well, read the book of Judges if you want to see what life is like when you do that. So I think that's the picture in Judges ultimately. We need, we need the ultimate deliverer. We need the King Jesus. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for the Savior who has come. We've been in bondage to our sins. We cry out, Jesus, save us. You will be our leader. You will be our head. Christ, the head of the church. Lead us in your ways, Lord. And just continue to teach us to live not a worldly life, not an ungodly life, not a life full of compromise, but a life full of just Christ-centered kingdom seeking and righteousness lord we we love you we want to live out the life that you called us to live Uh, we pray you be glorified we thank you for christ seen throughout the scriptures and pray as we continue this series of jesus in the old testament that we would continue to uh, just have our our eyes open to see uh, see the scriptures through the lens of jesus christ in jesus name amen